Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview with Kinesia Lubrin by Tea House graduate assistant and writer Trin Delaney. My name is Rebecca Jelaine and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Kinesia Lubrin is a writer, editor, teacher, and critic. She is the author of the poetry books Voodoo Hypothesis and The Disgraphist. Trin Delaney is a writer of Black Loyalist, African American, and European settler heritage, and is lesbian, queer, and genderqueer. Trin was a graduate assistant for Tea House at the University of Calgary in 2019 and 2020. This recording begins with a reading from Kinesia's most recent book, The Disgraphist. Trin and Kinesia then delve into discussing language and the use of multiple languages in the long poem, while they note the evolving experience of vocabularies during the COVID-19 pandemic and recent uprisings against white supremacy. In describing her writing practice, Kinesia discusses music and poetry as tuning into and replicating experiences in the body, how the ear hears, for example, and how the flesh feels. Their conversation then turns to one of the focal themes and motifs in Kinesia's poetry, oceans and bodies of water. Kinesia and Trin talk about how the bodies of water where they grew up shaped their childhood, their lives, and their writing. Finally, returning to language, Kinesia expands on her use of I in the Disgraphist to unsettle colonial understandings of identity, individualism, and the human as a machine. Hello, this is Kinesia Lubrin, uh, author of Voodoo Hypothesis and The Disgraphist. And I will read from The Disgraphist right now. I will read, it is a book length poem organized like a seven act play. I will read from act five called And I Too Late. I remember being is a thing like light. 
it arrives, and I breed out the deadlands. A definable dose of what? Good sense, a contemplative note of cachaca to risk us anyway, without cleverness, the stoppages, the nausea, the parchment into hills before morning, and please, no metaphors turning after being, no hurling or finally entering okay, maybe sopranos, vibratos stuck on E, foliate, which belongs to legions. I, like everyone, I clear the wave, crease the blank, where everything opens and beauty exists as assassin in the bone, cured if drawn outward, if it is too nakedly late to address the crow, I will insist the dawn into a spilling or a lift, and the irresponsibility of doves emerging with their late summer songs in early June. As you two sing, the woods pull out their hair, as though they too are aware and lust sharp for life as though demanding I into the gaze of another passerby, adrift in their love-drunk, uncertain self, before one new woman who smells like she's guzzled a hasty lunch, greets the one who must name her arrival, trip first. She hands to the bewildered crowd, I, a quick slash on the tongue, nothing more. And all of this I make from a glimpse of my mother in the mirror, seeing because it was necessary to see everything orphaned, returned to familiarity. So what has been, has been. And what is a spilling or a lift, if not the cavity where a life begins? Do not excuse me. I am not who I say, I have become. I see a black vulture, a fowl. So let me tell you, really tell you what I see. First, the fowl, and I won't claim it. The fowl, not the seeing that I, with the watching, can wreck a summary of, a footnote of. The bird's bald head spent all of its days in the skeletons of skyscrapers, caressing as it must. A question, blue-suited pigs. Once you are done misremembering the distended lives as before, and once I am done watching the fowl, do we, A, leave unchanged, also a vulture? like a bald thesis in the early morning before a god is wrung out to dry, or B, make out with pointless suppositions, like leaflets. I want a becoming, the chances of a Monday night opening into a Tuesday's bright offloading. You keep your comfort. Like this man at my door with his evidence, of that world, the known one soon to end. 
Remember that mothers have eaten their children, he says. And so was born the weeping wall. I must be lame. Is it too soon to offer any of us forgiveness? What gut-spilling conditions on the thin edge of even thinner seas? I want that basilisk defiant of sinking, that sleepless teaching into antidote, a spillage of stitches overreaching for ease. There's a naked symmetry I am after, in line on a cloud-cloaked street corner, a beneficiary I recognize throwing vanity at gangsters with the only correct clock, their handshake that means a meal. Forget the dust-bound mothers finally lifting, lifting their hems with the trembling wisdom of the dog, wary of the scripture of its teeth. I am that bewildering ceremony to be grateful for scraps. How indiscriminate to show up after three decades, child, springing from these lines, each line a drifting noon hour. Do I remember their founding? Candomblé throwing back a song or two without dealing lesser scales. Let them land, let them make no mention of towns full of them dark things, children, still camped in the woods, nursing their broken ribs, from which fall the white protective cloth for trespass in the coal mines. Yesterday, Gerswiller, today, Appalachian, the Kanahua River still smokes with the ailing Elk Valley. How a tongue turns many shades before receiving us. How all of we must be dead, please, Animus, try on jejun. I have given loyalty this anatomy of signs. I never walked out of what's mundane. Mere tumbleweed, mind forcing limb and patois into bridge. Some place some peace. I want no unsuitable offering, no self lurking there in stigmata. No, there is no more stigmata. No more malice of that kind. Jejun, these words are powdered bones along a zebra crossing. Anyway, pairing all of I self down to barcode, that venerated language of the colony, I never got out of moss and the learned bark of shapeless pine. I am easy to believe. I've gone from this shelter, left it to the snowy owl, left its skittering snow to translate the conversion of the burrowing hawk. Remember who chose the black vulture as kin. And I now, the old woman, is blind with diametric ambition. I am her script, the cicadic vice of the woodpecker the glint wilted defiance of salmon or upstream, the false kingdoms of all required things. I let her trace my face into palm, into terrain. So at least you will know where I have been, though I am no longer prostrate before a fool. Some tropical crayfish 
in her drowned earth, whose mother knew a woman once drunk on the words of vanished fishermen in the biblical sense. If I could speak, I'd sing you her name, Jijun. I'd oil up a bodybuilder, expert at trombone. Let you hear the expression she was so quick to utter and let a pulse rip. I hear hurtling, venereal, the click of a door. Or is it just rust I hear in you, Jijun? Say nothing of my birth, fed up at the egret on the rivered banks. Which one of us is sure we know nothing? And though restless at this writing toward, whose second glimpse cuts the molded saxophone, brassing the new crowd? To make a new phrase for the saxophonist's buzzing lips, to rip me a cave with horns. I do not talk its beats so that you will find me once again, just that I can be as I once was, parting a new country as the hard falling rain. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading. I was re realizing as I was listening what a privilege it is to have the space to listen to others read their work. Such There's two different texts, right? The auditory yeah. text and then the visual texts. And that really comes through. It's great to hear you read what I had read. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it really is. A, it's an interesting phenomena, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I often marvel at that, at the differences between encountering someone's work on the page and then encountering it in their own voice and their auditory expressions. Um, it just, it's, it's really something. Yeah. I was noticing also, you know, some things stand out to you more when you're listening. And this time what was standing out to me when you were reading was the amount of mouths and teeth and tongues in the section, which I think was a lot more subdued when I was reading it. But mm. I thought that I was going to ask you about the ocean first, but I think instead I'm going to ask you about language first because that seems yeah. to follow nicely to that section that you read. So I guess my first question is because in the Dysgraphist you represent a lot of different languages on the page. I was wondering how many languages you speak or if you write in different languages or what is your relationship to language, just because there is this plurality of voice? Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic question, actually, to, to start with. Thank you, Chen. So language, <laughs> I, I always say to certain people, at least, that if I were ever to have a superpower, the only one I would really want is the ability to speak every single language on this planet. And really, in that sense, that superpower is every superpower because, you know, what's the point of super strength and invisibility, et cetera, if you can't communicate? <laughs> so, so, so I want all of the languages. Uh, I, I do covet all, all the languages on the planet. I just think that language is something that is, is a material to me that registers as a state of matter. Like it's a, it's a way of doing that escapes 
normative understanding of what it is to do, what it is to be, what it is to exist. And I think language, because it, it is in all of us, allows for a certain, a certain measure of making our aliveness known in a, in a social context. Yeah, so it's, yes, I'm sitting in a room by myself and writing uh, in a language or in, or in a few languages, but then that thing, that thing that I've written makes its way into the world and causes, causes certain things to happen. And I think language for me registers as a kind of experiential medium in that it activates something through a kind of psychic charge. And so how many languages do I speak? I speak uh, three languages, I would say, English, Creole, and French. I'm quite competent with French, but I don't use it very often. And so I have to, uh, I have to put a lot more effort into communicating en français uh, when I do have to communicate en français. And I can get by in Spanish, uh, although it's mostly that I understand a lot of it rather than I speak it or write it. Mm -hmm. um, similar thing with Italian. And of course, I, I grew up uh, in, in a rather religious family, and so there was some Latin coming in through Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> so so with, with that sort of network of familiarity, um, a lot of these, the languages that I just mentioned are Germanic and, and Latin, Latinate languages, right? So there is already a sense of commonness, right? There's a com commonality between in, in their, how their etymologies are formed, the sounds that they make, etc. And and really, when I hear people speak German, I feel, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm in familiar territory. Yeah. Uh, even if I barely understand anything, I, I get a sense of what's of what's happening, what's being spoken. And I write primarily in English, of course. And um, since Creole for me has always been in the mode of oralité, I don't write a lot in it, but I do use it. I like to use it in my writings, uh, spe specifically in, in poetry. For some reason, it always comes up as a, as a, as a grammar and a vernacular and an expression in, in the poetry itself. And so I think language fundamentally is one of the places in which I feel a sense of wholeness and a sense of aliveness that rescues me somewhat from, as Dion Van puts, puts it, the sort of clinical awareness that I have of the world, mm -hmm. you know? And, and knowing, <laughs> knowing the world is what it is and all of the, the turbulence and, and, and hardships that exist out there, specific, you know, especially now with COVID and, and all of the uprisings that have been sparked by continuing anti-Black racism. Yeah. Language affords me a certain way of continuing there's a there's a kind of saving i think from the constant consciousness i guess that is living in this particular world um and so i go to language for beauty i go to language for for seeking i go to language because it's a, you know it's kind of a, a crucial part of how i live mm -hmm. and especially now um that we are all so distant from each other, communications have become so, so important. And I actually find that the languages that 
I speak with the people who are close to me have kind of shifted a bit over mm -hmm. the period because some people have become more aware of certain vocabularies or certain aspects of the world that they weren't before, especially people who are not so engaged with the kinds of uprisings that are ongoing and against white supremacy, for example, just one, I guess, like one of the larger structural uprisings, which is happening right now. But yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool to see those vocabularies changing and the language that we're speaking to each other changing in real time over Zoom and over video chats, because I don't think that I would have been using the word Zooming quite so much. Um, no, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, the experience of the world has definitely changed. Like you said, it's totally an experiential veil that we put up in front of ourselves when we switch languages. Yeah, so I was kind of wondering also if you experience the world differently when you're speaking different languages, because I'm also mm -hmm. bilingual. I say bilingual now, I've lost a lot of my French over the past years being in an English program, but... <laughs> I feel that I experience the world quite differently when I'm speaking French, just because my reference points are different. Absolutely. 100%. The thing about language and its various modes, its various modes of not only expression, but its modes of knowledge, right? You know in particular ways when you are existing in particular languages. The, mode, the modes of your knowing shift right and so this is why it's so important to think of the work of language in how the world is animated mediated structured right mm -hmm. and i mean one of the tragedies of colonialism is how it has wiped out so many languages and with those languages different kinds of knowledge have been lost different kinds of ways of being different epistemologies Think of it as, you know, you know, the tragedy of the Library of Alexandria that burned down with, I mean, who knows? Who knows how much was lost in that very thing? How far or how beyond certain things we might be right now if those troves of knowledge and different ways of being had not been wiped out. And so I think it's crucial for me, certainly as a, as a writer, but also as an educator, to give quite a lot of credence and focus to the work of language, you know, in, in all of its modes. So definitely, I think it's certain things, like if, even something as basic as trying to translate a joke from one language into the other, what is lost, you know, what just does not have a reference in, another, in the other language, even the, the tones, you know, the the different ways that sound and speech and rhythm activate certain things. Each language, I think, carries those things uniquely. And while they may echo in certain regards and produce parallels in other regards, there's just something very, very unique to how each language carries the stuff that we take for granted mm -hmm. every day. Yeah, and our own languages, like our personal languages with those close to us versus our languages, like you said, in the classroom. Yeah. It's all very different. You said different rhythms. A dancer once asked me what music I was listening to while I was writing something. And I told them that I hadn't been listening to anything because I'm not really capable of like 
retaining my own rhythm at the same time as listening to somebody else's rhythm. I know a lot mm. of people have that experience, especially if they're introverts, yeah. I, I think. But when I was reading your work, I, I was thinking about this also because the ocean has a rhythm and this is yeah. a text that is very based in the oceans of the world. So I was, I was wondering not what you're listening to while you're writing, but what you listen for when you're writing either internally or externally in order to kind of shape your poetry and find the correct or as close to correct rhythm that you need to have motivation to follow through. Mm. So that's, that's a very interesting question and very big, very big question. It is a very big um, question. So I think maybe I can elucidate a couple things that happens in my process of crafting. Number one, writing for me is also a very musical activity. I think my sense of music and sound is on the one hand that I make myself available to a certain kind of openness in, in which things will enter the process that I don't intend and I would like to make myself available to receiving them. I treat writing like scoring. Mm -hmm. I think very musically, I think rhythmically, and I am a musician myself, so I have that sense of music. What um, do you play? I play the keyboard, the bass, the acoustic guitar, uh, the drums, I, I sing also, and there's a bunch of band. other, yeah, one person band, basically, <laughs> and there are a few other percussion instruments that I also, that's awesome, can, you know, go, I can go places with, but I think for me, the sense that poetry, it's anatomy, I often say, is music, you're making song, and the, the insistence of that song is already in us, it's in the body, it's what, language does in the voice, what language does in the ear, what language does in our flesh, that we approach the page and try to replicate. Yeah. And so is a multidimensional, uh, multimodal way to, to sort of be engaged with language. So in a sense, what I'm listening for is a way to think that offers me a kind of music that will keep me going through the text. And so my sense of writing is deeply improvisational. I might follow instincts that lead me in a particular direction. And sometimes that direction becomes more and more clear and more and more capacious and it gets bigger. And other times I just, I, I attend to something, to some idea that takes me in a, in a different direction. And so I'm sort of following these networks of suggestion, you know, what's suggested by a phrase, what's suggested by the sound of a word, et cetera. But for me, everyone I'm drafting, things have to move on two main levels. It's what am I trying to say? And how must I say it? Those two things can take me in any direction, really. So when I figured out what it is that I'm doing 
the other main question is how should I do it? And so for the dysgraphist, it didn't really, I didn't start off thinking I'm going to write a book length poem. Or I'm going to write a poem in the form of seven acts. I started out uh, with an idea. There's a question, you know, this sense of the lyric I, for example, the I in literature, right? It's not just the lyric iteration of that I, but it's the I in literature and what the I does and how that doing extends into the world. Um, and so I was thinking through, after I had written a bunch of commissions, I went back to the material, I put them together, and I, and I saw that there were themes emerging. And I was reading Christina Sharp's In the Wake. Oh, um, such an amazing book. Everyone it's should a brilliant read it. book. Absolutely, mm -hmm. everyone should read it. And so her theorizing of what is produced in the wake of transatlantic slavery in terms of the rapid and repetitive dissemination of images of Black people as criminal, pathological, etc., through the media as producing a kind of dysgraphia. That is where the idea of the book is rooted. It's rooted in that, right? So to think of dysgraphia then as difficult writing, but also miswriting, right? Mm -hmm. And that miswriting can have several sources. But as a Black diasporic woman who writes poetry, the sense of writing the self, writing the body, writing the person, the self in relation to community, led me to, of course, to think with Edouard Glissant in his Poetics of Relations, where he talks about the right to be opaque, to have opacity, to honor the complexity that is the self, the human self, against these sort of strange, reductive, dehumaning and unhumaning project of colonial personhood that created hierarchies between people where to be human, you know, became to be white, mm -hmm. straight, cishet, male, Adamic, and then these other hierarchies uh, created all these different categories of what it is to be a human being. And of course, Black became unhuman. And that's why Black people were then relegated to the category of property and mm -hmm. slavery, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So there's a movement between how the ideas coalesce and the rhythm in which the various revelations happen in poetry for me. And so thinking of Kamal Brathwaite's idea of titillectics, right? in which he says the, the ocean, water, and, and of course the ocean, the water as a site of black diaspora, right, is, uh, is an idea that, that has been elucidated brilliantly by a lot of brilliant black thinkers. And to think of the aquatic, uh, as Ronaldo Walcott was saying last week in, in one, of these, uh, one of his events, to think of the black aquatic as global, as, to insist beyond these ideas of nationhood and uh, these, these other sectarian ideas of what it is to live in a commune, right? And so the whole project insisting on uh, it being an ocean drama, in a sense, uh, harkens back 
to the, the idea of the Middle Passage, to the idea of the movement of the tides, how things become awash and things get pulled back, right? And it's the sort of insistence that is a different kind of sound than, say, the iambic pentameter. It has a sort of mili military <laughs> military <laughs> sound, up, down, up, down, up, down. Yeah, it's very Sounds like you're going march. to war. Yeah. Yeah. Ends in a kind of punctuation that is never subdued. Yeah. yeah. So it's a big question. It's a big question. But how rhythm or the music that the ocean encourages, you know, Kumar Brathwaite says the, the hurricane does not roar in pentameter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is is a kind of insistence where he's drawing attention both to a, to a certain kind of fierceness. But at the same time, there is a gentility also to water, that it exists in multiple registers. And that sort of multiple, multipleness is what creates further space for possibility. Right. My sister was telling me the other day that, this makes sense to me once I heard it, but I hadn't considered it before, that the oceans are one of the last remaining commons mm -hmm. on the planet which is scary to think about, but also scary in a few different ways. Scary because that's a loss of common space and the understanding of both commonality and difference between mm -hmm. different peoples, but also because of the way that cargo is shipped and flags of convenience, as I think Shazia Haviz Ramji writes about in Port of Being are flown mm -hmm. in order to evade responsibility for environmental collapse. But yeah, yes. I was wondering if you'd want to talk about the ocean, where you come from, because all these oceans and seas have different, very different rhythms and very different landscapes associated with them. Personally, I come from the Bay of Fundy, which is a very intense ocean to come from. The, <laughs> yeah. the tides are the highest in the world. And the way that my people ended up there because they're a Black loyalist is also a pretty violent history of mm -hmm. recurring disappointment and continued oppression. So I was yeah. wondering if you'd be willing to talk about your ocean. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just to acknowledge your your sister's expression um, about the ocean and the sort of last remaining as the last remaining commons. That is something that is laced through my first book, Voodoo Hypothesis, that very idea. That's why I begin with breaking the, the collection with the by turning a sort of lens on space exploration, mm -hmm. um, which is which is the as we know, the all the rage now. Um, yeah. <laughs> with, with all this, yeah, with this new yeah. kind, new, this new level of colonialism, and then I bring the oceans into the into that poem. I reference the storms. I reference the ocean as as people not knowing the depth of the ocean that is in their backyard. But you know, that's this this whole other formation of shared space, mm -hmm. but also of this the very concept of life. You know, if it's all, we go all the way back, the theory is that life came from the ocean first. But, you know, my ocean growing up, I grew up by my, the first formative years of my life. I, I grew up in St. Lucia 
and we lived on the side of a hill. St. Lucia is one of the most mountainous countries in the Caribbean. Everywhere you look, there's just mountains and hills everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's very little flat land. If you want to compare that to Barbados, which is, you know, just a few miles away, yeah. um, that's almost completely flat. <laughs> um, we have tons and tons of hills. We have a lot of valleys. In uh, the actual anthem starts, sons and daughters of St. Lucia, love the land that gave us birth lands of beaches, hills, and valleys. Mm. Fairest island of the earth goes like that. Uh, so from our house, you could see the ocean. We're, we live a walking distance of two beautiful beaches nice. on the side of the Caribbean Sea, which is very calm, very yeah. dulce, very beautiful water. And so on very quiet days, you might hear the wind through the trees that sort of mimic the sound of the, the waves coming mm. in. But it's really not the waves. It just sounds exactly like the waves going coming in and out, in and out of shore. But it's just the wind and you could be tricked. During hurricane season, if there's a storm or something, or if there's you know, a sort of disturbance in the atmosphere, you might hear the waves crashing far out. There were certain, a few tragedies uh, concerning the rivers, etc., for my family and so my mother, instilled the fear of bodies of water in us. Uh, certainly those of us who are still young enough for, uh, to be conditioned that way. So we, she would take us to the, to the ocean, she would take us to the beach, and we were not allowed to actually go in anywhere far and swim. I'm the youngest one, so I would have to sit on the shore and wait for the, <laughs> <laughs> wait for the waves to come in and wet me. <laughs> so, and so there's a, uh, uh, memory, that sort of history in my, my personal history, is one that is riddled with distrust, a lot of distrust for the, for the ocean. And so I always had a, quite a great amount of love, but also a lot of fear around that ocean for me, right? It's a lot of wonder. There's this saying that in the Caribbean that goes, the, the sea doesn't have any branches. So if something happens, forget it. Mm -hmm. Can't hold on to anything, etc. <laughs> and so... That was for the first bit of my life. And I also spent uh, some time on the Eastern side of the island, which is along the Atlantic Ocean. And that's treacherous. It's mm -hmm. extremely rough. Some competitive surfers from all over the world come down there for those waves that are like 30 feet in the air. Wow. So on the Caribbean seaside, everything is beautiful and calm and gentle. And on the Atlantic side, things are rough. And the way that I, usually say it is that the Atlantic is angry. It's an angry ocean, as it should be, considering the history of everything that has happened, certainly for our people. In my mind, I'm creating my own myths uh, about the anger of the Atlantic Ocean. And so, yes, there's still quite a lot of respect <laughs> that I have for the ocean, but also a great love for it. And a lot of the myths that were really interesting and were part of my growing up as a child. A lot of the stories and the folk tales, coming to think of it, had almost nothing to do with the ocean. Mm. It, it was a lot about the inland, about the, uh, the wooded areas, about the river. The Anansi stories, for example, yeah. were a lot about rivers and the woodland. There's not a lot of mythologizing around the ocean. And so, 
that's also interesting to think of, you know, and there's a really broad and long history, as we know, of why that might be, because there are actual practices during slavery in which slave owners would, after capturing runaway slaves, uh, would, would take them to the estuary and to the ocean and drown them in front of the community to send a message. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot, there's a lot, again, that although we might not know precisely or in any exact terms, why certain kinds of knowledges and certain histories don't make it through the generations, there are things that happen by conjecture. And of course, that might lead to very interesting research questions, etc. And then they're going to uncover um, what is true of them, of these stories in the actual archives. Yeah, the, the ocean as this place of mythology is, is so interesting and so present in a lot of people's thoughts right now. I find there's been a lot, especially following Christina Sharp's book in the wake, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And also Dion Brand's A Map to the Door of No Return, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Was yeah. one of those texts that brought the ocean to the forefront. Yeah, I think of the ocean almost in a way like family, it is both dangerous and holds that history mm -hmm. that can hold you also and care for you, but you have to be careful. <laughs> you have to be in relation <laughs> to it in a good way or else you get trapped underneath. Well, I, I, I certainly got that memo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got that memo many times over. Yeah. But yes, you know, I, I, just to mention, how many ideas that structure, I guess, life on land disintegrate when it comes to the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, certainly ideas of law, borders, boundaries, the sort of fictions that we're given in the form of maps and ter territories sort of disappear in the ocean because part of how the idea of ownership and property is mapped is that something measurable Mm -hmm. is at stake whereas it's 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 almost impossible to do that with with the ocean you see yeah so that's really interesting to think to think of those things and it's really to think of black people and black people's history especially the black diaspora you know in a way that is not thinking of continental africa is that our places of significance and being is very much tied to the aquatic yeah very yeah. much very much tied and being in relation to the ocean in that way of, you know, having ideas of property fall apart goes back to your breaking of the eye into these yeah. different persons and multiplicities. I was wondering, um, just to close, we could talk about those eyes and collectivity in the mm -hmm. contemporary world. I found it very hopeful to have this, I mean, it's complex, it's not just hopeful, but to have mm -hmm. these eyes as first, second, and third person, mm -hmm. um, it made me remember how we can think of ourselves differently and how we can think of our communities differently and pulls the strings of the capital I identity that can often feel very oppressive, especially for those who are so-called marginalized people in the contemporary world, which is a very individualistic world. So exactly. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that first choice in the dramatis personae. I think you, you set up the question 
really well. It really, for me, thinking of the way that, you know, ideas of selfhood and personhood in the mode, in the Europeanist colonial mode, depends on an absolute reduction of people into these really transparent performances mm-hmm. of, of what it is to be a person in the world. And it's hyper-individualist because, again, it's a lot easier to control the thing you can define and the thing that you can characterize in your own, in your own terms. And so what I'm thinking through in, in, that, in the messiness of that Eurocentric category is, in fact, breaking the categorical adherence to the human as the sort of superior individualist capitalist machine that is engaged primarily in a sort of normalcy that is about production and that is about how much one can be mined for productivity. Mm -hmm. And because of that particular ideology, every other facet of human life becomes reducible to that I, to that one individualist I, and then everyone else in our ideas of relation are sort of forced into these performances where we have to prove we belong in that category, Mm -hmm. right? And so thinking of what human means, even outside of literature, if we think of philosophy, law, science, geography, all of that, is to re-enter the concept of the particular definitions of, of human through a more collectivist appreciation for what it is to belong in the world. And so that is about honoring the sort of complexity that we are alive within, rather than being completely transparent and accessible all the time, because that makes it easier for us to be used. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking primarily about how Black people in particular whether the conditions of unhumaning that have been placed upon upon us in these categories that say that we have to somehow (laughs) work to attain approval to be seen as human, which is why I think in a sense, we're always being forced to explain our humanity, to, Mm -hmm. to request that we be looked at as human. It's bizarre and it's bizarre and disorienting but it makes logical sense if you look at the history that created these categories. And so I begin the poem in the dramatis personae, uh, first person I, second person I, third person I, and all of that is addressed to Jejun, who is the sort of embodiment of all of that, to put the turbulence of that, of that category in a kind of sovereignty, because the poem is itself while it is writing outside of all of that and beyond all of that, it's a rejection of that reductionism. It is concerned with aliveness. It's concerned with freedom. And it's concerned with the collective and how freedom for the individual depends on freedom for the collective. That sort of engagement with what it is to be alive today, certainly as Black people, means that we, we are otherwise. We, we always have been otherwise. And then the category of human that 
was decided in the heart of European colonialism, which happened during the same time as Enlightenment. <laughs> it's hilarious. That is not ever who we are and what we are, but it is what has been imposed upon us, right? And these have very real damaging effects in the world, as we can see constantly with the constant public lynchings of Black people happening as a kind of normative thing. And so to disrupt that, one of my techniques for disrupting that is using the I as second person and third person, not just as first person. And so it creates a different kind of grammar, a different syntactic shape, which disrupts the usual uh, entanglements that individualism would require of the sentence, of the line, of the syntax, because all of it goes back to language and how language is sort of primal in how we are expressed and how we are written in the world. Yeah, I think you did such a great job of representing that through your work in a way that is so clear to the reader that it's, you can't read your book without really understanding that tension that I had kind of seen the other way in my own life of, you know, writing myself as you, like a kind of othering of the self mm -hmm. to fit with the productivity models of <laughs> our world, I suppose, yeah. potentially. But yeah, like I, I've been trying to practice that I myself and I think it's where I hope the world is going to understanding this complexity of humanity and the broadness of it and its wrongness also. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. you're right. Because we do we do tend to perspectivize, I think, the address to a certain self as you. But you know what the you does is it creates a certain kind of manageable distance between who is speaking and who's addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in certain contexts that might produce a kind of alienation in other contexts, you know, that might actually collapse the distance between the two, depending on what's happening. But I was really concerned with the I and what the I does and why this hyper-individualist context in which modernity takes place is so dependent on our participation in it. It's like we end up participating in those things, even when we don't want to, even then we know it's destructive. You know, so there's something really, really powerful at play that I think is a deadening of the self. Mm -hmm. You know, it creates a certain kind of deadening in that relationality becomes a deficiency, yeah. right? And so I'm pushing against that throughout the text. All of the pressure points in the poem is pushing back against this, this sense of relationality as a deficiency, because then where is the I? You know, I, if I want this thing, there's this sense of scarcity <laughs> that we are expected to co-sign, when in fact what we have is, is really extreme abundance. What we have is a world that is so unequal that all of that abundance floats to the very top into the hands of a few people and because they're in the center of the conditions that create the kind of hyper individualism that the that a world ruled by capital depends on then we are kind of we're in the stuckness we're kind of stuck in this right because what rules of what's moving through the world and animating the world are the machineries that take advantage of that individualism 
Mm -hmm. right? That tells us the individual above all else, because the human is superior to everything else. And it's this idea of human exceptionality that's sort of rooted also in the Bible, <laughs> in, in Genesis, etc. That's creating so many of these uh, this dissociative qualities in how we engage with one another. So, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really interesting thing just to go, you, do I say you? Uh, and what does you do? You removes me somehow, but it's also that you can include me because I can talk to myself and say you, mm -hmm. right? And that's why I had to break the syntax of the address in creating those various layers of, of address between the self addressing the self as the self within the collective. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. I don't know like, what other way to say it. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with Tea House. I really appreciate all the wisdom you've brought here today and the work that you're doing in your personal life. In the spirit of collectivity, I was wondering if you'd like to shout out anyone or anything, any books, people, music, artists that you think are doing the work that needs to be done. Yeah. I am currently in prep for the semester mode, and I'm really looking forward to teaching the work of Nazalie Diaz, whose book came out earlier this year called Postcolonial Love Poem. It's a really quite terrific text in how it breaks through various mythologies of place and the materials of place and how people, especially native people, in their own sense of cosmogony, create a kind of metaphysical abundance that is lived in spite of the terribleness of this strange dream that we live of continued dispossession and obliteration of whole economies, et cetera, et cetera. So really looking forward to teaching Natalie Diaz's post-colonial poem. Music so far, you know, I have been enjoying music from continental Africa, West African, jazz, South African jazz, and in languages that I don't understand, truly. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but I'm, in, I'm in the sort of materials of their sound and it's creating some really powerful mores of feeling for me that's driving me through the projects that I'm working on right now. Music, Mammal Hands, always uh, I go back to their music, Nicholas Payton's music. Mm -hmm. I'm also, of course, sitting with the work of Torquase Dyson, who's a brilliant, brilliant abstract visual artist working out of the States right now. Uh, and is doing really phenomenal thinking about Black spatial sense. She calls it Black compositional thought. And it's brilliant, brilliant work that she's up to. So I'm, I'm sitting with her work also right now. Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lies, Beautiful Experiments is another mm -hmm. book that is gonna spend years with me. And I'm only now starting to really process a lot of what's happening in that absolutely brilliant, brilliant text. And I'm very excited about the work of some poets who don't really, who don't have full collections out yet, but are doing some really, really interesting work to raise Pierre. Yeah, I've read uh, some of her stuff. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. She's doing some 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 interesting work. Faith Arker Full is doing some some interesting work. Zoe Imani Sharp is mm -hmm. doing some interesting work. Tolu Olorontoba is doing some 
some very interesting work. Of course, I love the work of Sandra Brewster, another visual artist. I have to shout out because her art is on the cover of the Disgraphist here. <laughs> it's so great for her art too. This is the perfect image. It, truly. Yeah. It yeah. So well. It really does. Uh, Nicole Seeley, Sophia Sinclair, Victoria Adukwe Bully out in, in the UK is doing some very exciting work. Brandon Shimoda, uh, who wrote The Grave on the Wall, is doing some, some fantastic work too. So there's a lot happening in my, in my artistic shell right now uh, that I'm very excited about. Yeah, it just feels like it's the artistic shell of many people is incubating right now and like yeah. it's getting ready to pop. I'm excited to see yeah. what comes of it. Chantal Gibson is also doing some really, really cool work, blurring the genres of textual and visual culture uh, in mm. some very cool ways. There's always more. There's always more. If I could collect a reading list from every person who, whose work I respect or who I respect, I, I would be so excited just make that my life's work reading their <laughs> connections and like really? <laughs> seeing how things work for them but yeah. you and me both you and me both there's so many oh, out there i'm I, gonna I'm stop excited. right now <laughs> <laughs> um i'll put a list together and put it in our show notes so that other people can see it and cool. share share those works too if they feel like sounds it sounds good sounds good what are you up to right now i i'm writing a haunted house story set in the Maritimes. And I'm also working on my poetic practice. How much poetry you got going? Chapbook, full-length collection? I had a I had a chapbook that was very small that I self-published a while ago, but I don't have any copies anymore. And I feel like it's kind of distant from myself now. Okay. In like two years, but... I would like to read that haunted house story when you're done. Yeah. We're just putting it on record that you're going to email it to me. <laughs> I will email it to you when I'm done. Well, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you for the engagement and the, the very difficult, big questions. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kinesia. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Kinesia Lubrin by Trin Delaney. I'm Rebecca Jelaine, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The reading and conversation you just heard was recorded in August 2020. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Sukel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Shalane, Paul Meunier, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>